my gosh, guys, I can't even begin to tell you. I want to be so excited right now. Episode 61, round 8,926. I have no idea if we're going to make it through this without it crashing, it looking shitty, and maybe all of us just, you know, throwing stuff and probably getting drunk. It has been one heck of an interesting experience so far. We're trying to go live with this whole Ustream thing. Uh... Oh, I'm not going to lie. ATT, U-verse is kicking my butt. Ustream's kicking my butt. Brian Elliott, all the way from Idaho, is kicking my butt. I'm going to try to turn it over to him for a little bit, see if he can make things a little bit more chipper, because I need to get in a better mood. So, Mr. Brian Elliott, how is your evening going? Well, man, my evening is going a whole lot better than yours is. I don't have any IT issues. Um, everybody at my office has gone home for the day, so I'm just hanging back, drinking some hams. And talking to my boy Brian in Texas. So, you know, just hanging out. Well, heck yeah, dude. I like it when we hang out. We always have a good time. We try to goof off, you know, enjoy life, talk about some dirt biking, talk about some not dirt biking. All the stuff that makes things go on. So you've got hams, is that correct? Um, so I figure why not go back to the roots tonight? A little bit better than the uh, the old E that you had going on last night, uh, maybe. I would hope. What do you think? Coverage that we brought last night um, will never be seen, unfortunately. So, uh, if anybody happened to catch that, um, they're one of the few that will uh, get to enjoy uh, hours of countless um, nothing. <laughs> Absolute shenanigans. I am having a Blue Moon Belgian style pale ale. Uh, first couple sips were a little nutty, you know what I'm saying? But uh, after that, no, after that, you know, I'm, I'm kind of digging it. It's not the worst. I know that uh, our good friend Dale Spangler would really enjoy it. So that'd be a lot of fun. I need him. I couldn't get him to be a guest star tonight. Where's the Easter Bunny costume? I figured we could talk him into this. I don't know. Okay, so... I want to know a little bit about who you are. We've also seen, we've touched on this kind of stuff before, but people that are watching or maybe people that aren't watching have no idea who you are. So tell us, Brian Elliott, who you are and how you're involved in the industry. Oh, well, I'm just a dirty dirt bike rider uh, from Helena, Montana. I currently live in Boise, Idaho, where uh, we run our Alliance Off-Road operation. And, uh, you know, we just hang out, ride dirt bikes, have fun. And, uh, man, it's... If this is our favorite time of year around here. We're getting a ton of riding in, and I'm just pumped to be on the show tonight. I had a big follow-up with my boy Jason Hooper from last week. So, uh, yeah, let's see how this thing can go down this week, huh? <laughs> yeah, I think it's going to be interesting. Uh, if anything's led up to it, 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 or if things have led up to the way that it feels like, it could be either very spectacular or it could crumble to pieces quite easily. I honestly do not know. But, okay, so I'm wearing your shirt right now that you sent to me, Live Life Off-Road. That has to do a lot with uh, Alliance Off-Road, which you run. So we want to know more about that so that people out there can know what it is, how to find it, and all that kinds of fun stuff. Well, man, a Live Life Off-Road is, uh, is something that we kind of came up with here at Alliance Off-Road. And uh, what it is, man, it's just really the lifestyle that we try to portray. It's the perception that we're trying to create of all sorts of different activities and you know we're we're a clothing line for one and uh, for two we're actively trying to educate people on what it really means to be off-road and, and you know the thing is it's real easy to say hey we're the only guys out there we're the only ones enjoying the trails but we're not and so what we try to do is to raise the level of, educa the level of education for the people out there that are, you know, everybody's out there enjoying what they do. And so we're just trying to maintain that, you know, if you're uh, on a horse, if you're on a mountain bike, if you're out there hiking, you know, we're all trying to keep the trails open. And so what we try to do through the back end of our site um, is really try to educate people on all the different levels and, and kind of let everybody know what we're doing, you know, as far as, hey, live life off-road goes far beyond just dirt bikes. That's a really interesting point, and this is a conversation we had the other night, but I think that it, it, it is a conversation worth having again and something that should be on the record is that it is really hard to find that common ground uh, between, you know, the mountain bikers, the horseback riders, and the dirt bikers, the four-wheeler riders, and then the hikers, you know, and then, uh, you know, there's been good points about the Sierra Club who doesn't want to do anything out in the woods. They just don't think that anybody should be out there, um, you know, so there's all kinds of extremes, so... 
for those people, you know, the ones that are trying to find that common ground and kind of be a little bit more, you know, open to ideas like that, you know, what are your, what's some of your, what's your advice to those kind of people and how they can, you know, I guess, treat other activists that are out, you know, on the multi-use trails? Well, the biggest thing for us is to let people know, you know, as much as we love doing what we do, other people love doing what they do. So, I mean, you have to be considerate. You know, one of the things we talked about last night on the show was uh, something that we try to do every time we see somebody on a, you know, if they're hiking or on their horseback, man, we turn off our bikes. You know, it's huge to be able to turn off the bike, say hello, introduce yourself, you know, say it's a beautiful day and we're all glad to be out there enjoying the same trail system. And we call it the Hug a Hiker program. And uh, out here it goes pretty good, you know, because we do, uh, you know, in Idaho, everything out here is shared use. And so when it comes down to it, we're all just trying to be at the same place in the same time. And, uh, man, there's way too many people that uh, that are, are great at not getting along. So we try to be the people that are getting along. And, you know, it's uh, it's tough because, you know, we've got our, uh, our perception. People think that all of us dirt bike riders are just out there to do burnouts and climb hills. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of us out there that just want to go out and explore and be on an adventure and, uh, and love life and, uh, and really just have fun. And so it's no different. You know, I'm married. My wife is an avid backpacker. Um, and, and so, you know, needless to say, in my, ho- in my home, uh, we have uh, conflicts of where are we going this weekend because we're either going somewhere on foot or we're going somewhere on uh, two wheels. And so, you know, that's really helped us create you know, the lifestyle of live life off road, because the truth is, man, is as long as you're outdoors, enjoying everything that there is to enjoy, um, you're doing it. And that's kind of what we're all about. Well, I really enjoy that. Uh, the, the conversation that, uh, that you guys are having, my wife and I talk about that a lot, uh, you know, going to the races and things like that. But what's kind of crazy is that she's not a hiker. And, you know, I'm a big biker. She doesn't really ride dirt bikes, but she kind of comes out of the races and helps out and takes care of the kids, takes care of me, stuff like that. So, you know, it's good that she likes to come out and do the off-road stuff with me. You know, I'm kind of hoping that I could one day maybe find like a 234 or something like that, really kind of get her involved and, uh, you know, do that kind of stuff. So one of the things, the takeaway that I kind of, that I always get, uh, that I learned from being at the Ross property with my dad and, and uh, all the Arkansas dirt riders is that there's a lot of horse riders out there and it, it's, you know, we're on a dirt bike. They do kind of view us as, as the dirty dirt bikers and it's always best regardless of who you come up across, you know, go ahead, kill your bike as soon as you get a chance. If you get a chance to talk to them, if they seem like they're friendly and they actually do want to talk because there are people that will not give you the time of day, uh, you know, give them that, give them that chance. If nothing else, you know, Hey, how's it going? Having fun. Awesome. And give them a good couple hundred feet to get away before you start your bike back up, because that's gonna that's gonna make relationships go a lot a lot further if uh, you treat them with the you know give them more respect than you think you would want to a lot of the time. Absolutely, man. The golden rule on the trail, right? It it works every time. <laughs> Half the time. All right, so. <laughs> Yeah, that's just about the way it, well, shit, tonight it's gone even less than that, so it's been pretty interesting. One of the, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, that's pretty much the way it's going to happen. So, one of the other things I think that you deal with in your line of work is Paul Wibley and uh, Jordan Ashburn with the Ampro team with Randy Hawkins and things like that. So, tell us a little bit about your workings there and, uh, you know, if you've got any juicy bits. <laughs> a little bad juice, but um, yeah, you know, part of uh, the Alliance Off-Road program is uh, we provide a lot of different media services for uh, different companies, and uh, one of those is my good friend Randy Hawkins and the Ampro Yamaha Factory Race Team. Uh, I get to the wonderful opportunity of working with guys like Paul Wibley and uh, Jordan Ashburn on a fairly regular basis, and uh, you know, we have a lot of fun. You know, Paul and Jordan are great guys. And uh, the contribution that Randy gives to the off-road industry, especially in these times, you know, where we've got a lot to deal with, man. It's, you know, our industry suffering right now. And so it's, uh, I feel real blessed to be a part of what I'm a part of and uh, be able to have fun doing it. And so it's definitely, uh, it's definitely, again, it's a tough time to be in this industry. And, you know, you, it's it, the writings on the wall. You see things like Kawasaki pulling out of off-road, things like that. And, uh, you know, we just got to stay positive, have fun. And remember what we're out there doing, and we're out there just riding our dirt bikes and having a good time. And so you can't take that away from us. That's very good words there, Mr. Brian Elliott. One of the things that I want to know more about, especially with Paul Wibley, 
um, is the customizations on his motorcycle. I do know that, you know, one of the things I hear a lot is simple is always better. And I kind of agree with that. You know, if you could take away a lot of, you know, a lot of the variables, then you're going to come down and have a really good, you know, easy set uh, stuff to change. But, you know, he had, say like he has the different settings on his, uh, on his rear shock. Got a couple of like little deals there. You know, why is it that that kind of stuff do you think hasn't really made it into more mass production like we have on the mountain biking side of things where we have, you know, all kinds of uh, adjustability and things like that for the consumer? Well, you know, man, to be honest, I think we just have to look at it on a whole. I mean, you look at uh, you look at pure numbers, you know, you look at the people that are mountain biking, you look at the numbers and um you know, we're we're a very small number. Our our, our little dirt bike industry, as as we would call it, and uh, you know, it's it's very interesting. But I think the R and D that we get kind of moves a little bit slower than what you would see in other aspects. You know, as far as you know, the suspension stuff that we do with Paul's bike and the way uh, we have things set up, it's it's something that you know we've kind of gone back to the roots. But there's also we've got some little tricks up our sleeve, and I think that. You know, it's it's nice being a part of a factory platform because we get the opportunity to create um, the the ideas for what the manufacturers then follow. And uh, you know, a guy like Paul, uh, you know, I give a ton of credit to uh, to our boy Ryan Slagle, his mechanic, because Paul has a lot of needs. He has a, a lot of things that he's got to have just right. And um, this is Ryan Slagle's first year. And, uh, you know, they've got the OMA championship under their belt already. And, you know, Ryan is learning a lot in, in just every race, man. It's just it's just cool because, you know, it, it takes a lot of people to win that championship. And, you know, that that rider, um, he's he's the main part of it. But the people behind it, man, there's just a lot going on. And, uh, you know, Ryan Slagle is the mechanic. He does an amazing job. So huge props to him for sure. Yeah, it, it's interesting the, uh, to hear, you know, a about how it is really big a big team effort um when you know it's one rider cannot just jump on a stock bike and you know have phenomenal experience when it comes to racing you know it's unfortunate what we're seeing right now with josh string you know you know he he has a fairly stock ktm having a lot of issues uh you know on some of the faster works types tracks it's not it wasn't until you know it turned a little bit more off-roady that he wound up you know winning um one of the events or one of the mains. And so, uh, you know, the, the fact that these guys can kind of get the, you know, the level that they're able to get out of the team is really neat to see. And so I, it's, it's something that I don't think I'm ever going to be able to experience. You know, I, I unfortunately just learned about the whole cone valving suspension on KTMs and how they're supposed to be super awesome. I, I it's like, Oh, uh, I, you know, it's hard enough for me to figure out my suspension as it is what I'm riding. So then you got that going on. It's like, uh, I don't really know. But with Kawasaki's, Kawasaki and Honda have got the air spring forks now. So, I mean, do you think that that's going to be something where, you know, the, the end consumer can wind up, you know, getting a lot more adjustability and uh, a better ride out of their bikes? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think the air setups that they're moving to, um, you know, it's nothing new. It's something we saw in the 80s on different bikes. And, uh, you know, the seal systems were kind of the issue there. And now we've got to the point where the technology uh, surpasses the actual function of the system. And, you know, I think that the way that we're moving forward is, you know, how cool is it to be able to have the same suspension set up and be able to adjust it, uh, you know, pretty much on the fly. You know, I mean, look at where I live, uh, you know, in Boise with I've got the desert to the south and the woods to the north. And it's like, you know, being able to adjust something so quickly um, with as much ease as just an air pump is something that's, you know, fairly unheard of, but, uh, in the motorcycle industry, it's unheard of, you know, but when it comes down to a lot of these guys out here, that snowmobile, um, it's something that, you know, Fox has done for years with their suspension settings. And, uh, you know, it's, I think it's just a matter of time before our, our industry kind of builds up to that. Um, I've heard a lot of good things about the CRF suspension. So it's just a matter of kind of building, um, you know, upon that and, you know, Yamaha, when they make decisions on things like that, it's something that there's a lot that goes into it. There's a lot of time. There's a lot of effort. And uh, usually when they release something on that level, it's a, it's game-changing at that point. So, Yeah. One of the big things I, – I keep going back to mountain biking as, as kind of my relevance. It's just that I've been mountain biking – You know, I've been riding dirt bikes since I was five or six years old, but I've been involved much more deeply 
in uh, in mountain bikes for a lot longer, I guess you could say, being a mechanic and racing and stuff like that. And it's interesting because on the World Cup circuit for downhill, you've been seeing like the air shocks come out in the rear for the rear, you know, the uh, the actual shock, not the fork. Um, and one of the things that, that that was so hard for them to figure out how to deal with was that when you have an air chamber heating up, it expands so much more than if you have a spring heating up. And so they were like, well, where do we put this? You know, it's like this air, when it starts to heat up, gets thicker. And uh, so it's like, ah, uh, and so it's really the, 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 the technology that came out of their research to figure out how to uh, handle that was incredible. So I know that if they were able to do that there and they're able to do air shocks and uh, things like that on snowmobiles, that one day, not only will we have air sprung, you know, forks, but we'll have air sprung shocks on a dirt bike. Uh, and that day will easily save 10 pounds. And <laughs> I think it'll be an interesting. Doing some things is definitely going to save weight. And, uh, you know, it's fun. It's fun looking at where we're at now, where we were at, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago. And, uh, you know, it's just uh, every day is a new day. So it's fun to just kind of see where things are going. That's for sure. Okay. okay so. One of the things we're talking about Paul Wibley going forward, he obviously had a great weekend this past weekend. Well, he had a good weekend. He may not have had the weekend he wanted at the GNCC uh, at Powerline Park, but he obviously did uh, have a good weekend. Came away with still the points lead, but not exactly the points lead he was looking for because unfortunately it closed up with Caleb Russell having his really good ride, Charlie Mullen's bike actually finishing, so that means that Charlie Mullen's finished. And... Uh, so you know, and then we had Caleb, uh, or we had uh, Paul Wibley coming in behind him. So you know, the XC1 class was extremely awesome. We had tons of good racing going on in the XC2 class. You know, everybody's looking around to see Stuart Baylor. How's he gonna do? How's Justin Tom or Jason Thomas gonna do? Got Andrew DeLong. Lots of lots of good racing going on there. Lots of changing in the points for the XC2 class. So some of the stuff that went on. What do you think? What are some of your opinions on this past weekend at uh, Powerline Park? Well, man, you know, it's, it's, there's so many things that happened this weekend. And uh, Powerline Park is a place I'm very familiar with. Uh, a lot of people in off-road are. Um, anything can happen at Powerline Park. And uh, huge props to Caleb Russell. Um, so proud of him for the way he rode. He really went into this race, um, I wouldn't say as the underdog, but he went into the race with something to prove. And uh, regardless of, of my position and what we do with the team, you know, I'm proud of Caleb. He, he did a great job racing. And, uh, you know, you look at some of the other guys, but Charlie, like you said, getting across the finish line, you know, I mean, it's, you know, it's been a weird year. There's been a lot going on and uh, a lot of, a uh, lot of ups and downs. You look at Stuart Baylor in the XC2 class. I mean, the kids had two broken wrists this year, um, still out there charging hard. Jason Thomas getting the win. Jason's a phenomenal rider. Um, you know, I had a good opportunity to spend some time with those guys out here at Big Sky last or this uh, last uh, month, and it was awesome. And so, you know, it's good to see those guys moving forward. But uh, with Paul and the way it was going down, you know, Powerline has a way of taking the good and the bad. And uh, if you get the bad, it kind of builds upon itself at Powerline Park. And I think that Paul got the best of that. Um, you know, one mistake turned into many mistakes as we talked last night, um, as dirt bike riders and as racers, we all deal with that. I mean, it's, it's amazing how one mistake can turn into 10 mistakes almost instantly just based upon our attitude, our morale, where we're at and, uh, what we're trying to achieve. And I think that, uh, I think those mistakes just, uh, were, were ultimately the end of Paul when it came to power line in that, po you know, and, and getting that first place position. But, uh, you know, Paul knows what he, what he did. Paul knows what he needs to do. And, uh, that's, that's his specialty. So, I mean, it's, it's, he's an individual that's always learning and, uh, man, he's an animal. So he's going to take what he learned from power line park and he's going to put it all into the next race. I guarantee it. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that Hoop and I talked about last week when we were talking about going into Powerline Park was that Paul Wibley hadn't had a bad race all year. And they said typically if you look back, even for the people that have won the championship, everybody has at least one bad race. And so it was, he even said, he's like, it's pretty much his time. And it proved to be completely true. Uh, I mean, unfortunately for Paul Wibley, but it's just what it is. You know, it's kind of part of racing. 
But yeah, I mean, this was his bad race. You know, he, stuff went wrong. Things went really right for Caleb Russell. I mean, his mom was out knee deep in the mud with the mud fleas, making sure that if he was freaking stuck in the mud, that she was going to be the first person there to make sure that he was out as soon as possible. And I think that's awesome commitment to see from his mom and from team members and stuff like that. And then Charlie Mullen's bike making it. Uh, and then he's just had unfortunate bad luck this year. There's obviously nothing wrong with those motorcycles. It's just, you know, kind of what it is. It's part of off-road racing for sure. Uh, I think that's what brings this sport and makes this sport what it is. Um, you know, every once in a while, you guys, you know, we'll get we'll get a rider who can come out and just dominate. But I'll tell you what, I'd much rather be at a race wondering who's going to win than just go into it and uh, have my hands in my pockets and say, well, let's uh, let's shoot for second. You know, so it, it keeps it fun. I mean, you know, for the past couple of years watching motocross, it's just been like, well, we know who's going to win. So uh, let's bet on who's getting second. So, I mean, you, you know, with off road, we not only do you get a different atmosphere than you get with moto. You get uh, the competition that, in my opinion, is second to none. You know, anybody out there um, that was battling for, you know, a top five spot in, in this weekend in Ohio, you know, any one of those guys could have been on the podium. And it was just a matter of circumstance uh, for who ended up on it. So, yeah. And then we've got, if we talk about the XC2 class a little bit, we had Chris Douglas and uh, Plessinger, you know, moving up from the 250A class. Uh, and Plessinger and Douglas both had really good rides, but Plessinger winding up on the podium, second place. You know, kind of pulling Eli Tomac back when he was at Hangtown, his first pro, excuse me, his first pro debut. You know, it's like, it, but then from there, Tomac was a little slow, but now look at him kicking ass, taking names. So we could probably maybe only see the same thing from Plessinger. I think it would be pretty cool to see. But Jason Thomas definitely made up for, you know, the bad luck at the past race where he got stuck in the mud hole, all that kind of bubkiss. Andrew Long getting by him. This time, he got ahead of Andrew DeLong. He got ahead of Stuart Baylor Jr. All those guys came in in front of him. He got the points lead away from Stuart Baylor Jr. And now Andrew and uh, Baylor, they're much closer. Uh, and I think it's going to be interesting to see the fact that we're actually going to go down to Loretta Lynn's for pretty much both championships. And I think that that weekend is going to be absolutely amazing and that you should probably be there. Yeah, I'm going to try my best. I think if I could twist uh, Dale Spangler's arm and the two of us come down there, um, I think it might be a good time, man. I mean, we got a couple uh, – we might have to do some seat time challenges and give some stuff away, and I think we could have a good time. But, yeah, no, for sure, I'm, I'm, I'm building on top of what you just said about the XC2 class. Um, so awesome to see Plessinger come up and do what he did. Uh, you know, again, huge props to Jason Thomas. And, uh, you know, as, as Hoop, who was on the show last week, you know, Jason's a – He's there. He's a smart guy. He knows it. But, um, you know, it's it's always fun to see these open A guys come up and race in the XC2 because uh, the open A is kind of like the hidden class. And um, in my opinion, you know, guys like Chris Douglas, Adam Bonner, you know, they're pushing so hard and they're just killing it out there. And uh, to race the way they do on the course that they're racing on and where they start, you know, those guys are my heroes. You know, I, I love watching the open A class. Um, you know, when we sit back at the end of the year and start looking at riders moving to the next year, you know, we look at those guys cause you know, it's kind of like the college college level sport versus the professional level. You know, you get to see heart and, and nothing but heart and you get to see these guys just pushing so hard in that open a class. And, uh, it's just, it's fun to see. And, you know, especially to have Plessinger come up and finish the way he did, uh, definitely proud of him. It was, uh, exciting and, uh, yeah, just just a good time. I'm just I'm pumped the way it ended up this weekend. Yeah, I can't I can't disagree at all. As uh, as one of the things that came up yesterday, leverage from the bottom. Everybody's got leverage from the bottom. I'm glad to see the people that are on top have leverage from the bottom. It's a good time. So that's the GNCC Powerline Park. Awesome as always. I saw some pictures from Ohio off road. All kinds of guys that were there. The mud was insane. It looked great. People were going over the handlebars. Make sure you go scour the internet, find everybody's pictures, and check them out because they're really awesome. So, moving on, Denver Endurocross, Tad the Bazuziak, kicking ass, taking names, being awesome. Wow. Um, the courses. I listened and I heard Taylor Roberts say that, um, I don't remember their name, but the, the, the company that is hired to make the tracks are making them a little bit more racy. And not something that the trials guys could only win. Uh, opinions on that? 
Well, I'll tell you what, man. Uh, since since the inception of Enduro Cross, you know, this is a scene that I've been on. Um, you know, it's it's I love it. You know, I, I love Eric Pernard, Lance Bryson, uh, hometown Texas boy down there. Um, you know, these guys do such a great job to put on a, a great show. And um, you know, for the past couple years, you know, past three years, you've got a rider like Taddy Bluzuziak who um, who sets the bar for so many different aspects of our sport. And uh, kind of like we talked about last night, you know, um, I work a ton with Jason Reigns and the Reigns Riding University. And and uh, a guy like Taddy is, he's at a point where his understanding of his motorcycle and its functions and how it works and what it can do is just a, that next step. And so it gives him a huge advantage, you know, to even on a professional level, you know, you've got guys that are trying to figure out how to do things, trying to progress, trying to be at a place that um, that he is, in all honesty. I mean, he really sets that bar. And, um, you know, I think what they're trying to do is to give some of these guys that are racing work, some of these guys that are have a different background, a little bit more opportunity um, to be in that top spot and be in that spotlight and uh, be on top of the podium. And uh, it's tough, man, because, you know, as these guys work faster – at their skills to be more technical. Uh, Taddy goes home and works on his moto skills and he works on getting faster. And, uh, you know, I think it trickles downhill for him where I think they have an uphill battle trying to become more technical. And I think Taddy has a little bit of a downhill battle just to become, you know, for him, it's like, all right, I already know how to do this. So I'm just going to work on being faster and more consistent. And, uh, that gives him a huge edge going into it. And, um, you know, the one thing that you don't, the, the one thing that there's no lack of an enduro cross is respect. You know, nobody goes out there and says, wow, um, you know, there's no reason Taddy should have won. You know, anybody out there that gets second, third, fourth, fifth place is going to look at that and say, you know, Taddy earned it. He rode good. He did good. And it's because of his ability of a rider to do so. So, I mean, it's it's not just a chance of luck, in my opinion. I think Taddy's a great rider. He knows what he's doing. Enduro Cross is, in all honesty, his scene. It's where he's developed. I mean, you've been in you've been in Germany for the past couple of weeks and you know, you're talking about a guy who's got international respect for his talent, and uh, that's exactly what it is. Uh, I think one thing that was interesting this year is that he switched over to the 350. Uh, you know, he was riding the two-stroke for so long, and everybody was like, oh, you know, he's on the two-stroke. It's so much easier to flick around, so much lighter. And be it that KTM asked him to ride the 350, be it that he was like, I'm going to prove everybody wrong. I'm going to ride the 350, which I'm, I don't – I almost think it could be that because he seems like in the in the long run he might be a little egotistical and so that would be something where he's like, oh, no, oh, come on, I got this and he's going to go do it and prove everybody wrong. But, I mean, do you think there's anything to you know the two-stroke versus the four-stroke in the Endurocross scene or is it really just a rider preference when it comes down to that bike choice? Man, I love that question uh, because – uh, in the back of my truck right now, I've got my YZ250 uh, that's ready to go that we're working on. And, uh, you know, it's one of those things where I've, I've got a YZ450 as well. So um, I think it comes down to really there's a lot of uh, business that comes into the, the decision of Taddy riding a 350. Uh, you know, KTM wants an audience and uh, you put the one of the best riders in the world in his platform or in his scene and you put them on the bike that you want to be on and you're going to sell bikes. And I think that that's kind of their overall benefit from it. Teddy knows he can win on a two stroke. So I agree. I, I agree with you on, I think there was a little bit of a challenge and a little something to prove. Um, but overall, when you're riding tough technical, um, you know, single track or whatever it may be, you know, when I'm out here in Idaho, I'd be lying to you if I said that, man, I just, I love riding my 450 and all that stuff. I mean, for me, uh, I am a two stroke guy when it comes to just getting nasty and, uh, getting in situations where you're trying to scratch your head and figure out how to get out of, uh, I'd much rather be on a bike that lays wet or that weighs less and, uh, and is easy to start and just kind of moves its way out and picks it way, picks its way through. I mean, you know, I don't know if you've ever rode trials bikes, but, um, you know, you know, you, you kind of get that feel from that that two stroke. It gives you that balance. It gives you those uh, all the different skill sets that you need. And so when you hop on a two stroke, I think a lot of those things come natural. But uh, you know, there's a lot of kids out there racing these days. They've never even thrown a leg over a two stroke. So I think that uh, it's kind of a in our industry, in the off road industry, if you find somebody that knows how to ride one really well, 
um, it becomes a secret weapon in a sense. You know, you look at the National Enduro Series and things like that, you know, where you just, you kind of get these dark horses, kids like Nick Berger and and uh, Lafferty and just, you know, these guys just rally and um, it's nothing new. I mean, you know that. I mean, you were the same age. It's nothing new. It's, it's just... Uh, it's just fun, and uh, I'll tell you what, there's not a two-stroke in the world that won't make me grin ear to ear, so I can't always say that about uh, my other bikes, and uh, I do enjoy riding them, but a two-stroke brings a smile to the face that uh, no other bike will, that's for sure. Yeah, it, it, sometimes it's not just an ear to ear grin, sometimes we're actually filling our pants, and it's more of a, an outward cry or sigh that looked like a very large smile. So it's unfortunate, but it is what it is. So, what are the things? <laughs> Last on it, and uh, you know, I <laughs> we just have a good time. It's one of those things that uh, it is. It's just so light and so easy to ride that it's hard not to have a good time on it. Totally agree. While we're on the topic of two strokes, though, um, okay, something that I was just noticing when I was looking around and I read some people's responses to like a four stroke two stroke kind of comparison type thing um okay so when you look at the european manufacturers they make two strokes religiously and they're continuing to research and develop them come out with better stronger faster two strokes um while we still see the japanese except for yamaha uh you know but that is still you know i mean you you could easily say that, that that bike's 12 years old with bold new graphics every year, essentially. Um, not that it's a bad, horrible motorcycle. It's just that there hasn't been any development to it internally. Um, so one of the things that I think is interesting is that the Europeans race on the type of terrain that they develop these motorcycles for. And that is why the two-strokes never died out. Now, the Japanese, they do not even though I know that they ride motorcycles, their motorcycles that are made and manufactured in Japan are then mainly shipped either here or other parts of the world where they are ridden in the majority. So it was easier for them to say, oh, where we're going to sell the most motorcycles, they're not going to allow two-strokes is what I think everybody thought um, and that they were kind of trying to push the four-stroke. But in Europe, because of the fact it's a lot slimier, it's a lot more technical, there's more enduro racing opposed to just pure motocross that, you know, I guess, you know, blows air up the skirts of the fans that they were continuously being able to make and develop and sell these two strokes. Now, does any of that make sense or ring true to you or what are your thoughts on something of, you know, the caliber of the words that just came out of my mouth? Oh man, every everything you said makes sense. I mean, the reality is is that you've just got well, I'd say you've got two different markets. I mean, the European market uh, is something where the terrain, um, you know, it, it all varies in such a way that you know what they're going to keep producing what works, and uh, the sales model and the business model for these European manufacturers. Um, it's very consistent, and so when they look into how things are selling, the up and the down. Um, it's very easy to stay consistent. And they say, well, you know, two strokes are doing well. All right, we're going to keep manufacturing. Whereas the U.S. market, I would say, is is different than the European market in a sense of trendiness. Um, you know, yeah, especially with your the European market being behind. Um, you know, I've, I've lived in Southern California, worked in Southern California, you know, growing up in Montana, now living in Idaho. You know, whenever something's cool, you hear about it, you know, let's just say the, the the common the the common knowledge or whatever you know let's say it takes a year for something to be cool up here that was cool in Southern California a year ago, and uh, in Europe I think it takes a lot longer for it to do that. So by the time something trends, it, you know things like two strokes never really go away. We're here in the U.S. They kind of make their fade. They're kind of not cool. All of a sudden four strokes are awesome. Then they're not cool because four strokes are just so cool that people are trying to be the uncool. And, uh, and now all of a sudden they start making a comeback. And, you know, the thing is, is that KTM has been there to capitalize on that. They make an amazing product. They haven't stopped production. They haven't done anything that has made them take two steps back. They continue moving forward. And uh, in the U.S. marketplace, it's a huge advantage for them because you have a lot of us who love riding trails. But I would say the Japanese mindset, um, and of course, this, this is opinion-based, uh, but I would say that the Japanese uh, manufacturing and mindset is more targeted towards Southern California. They're just saying, okay, what's cool right now? 
What are people riding? What do they want to ride? Let's build that. And so, uh, unfortunately, us where I live or you where you live, we don't necessarily get that targeted audience. And it's kind of like, here's kind of the leftover. But uh, I think, you know, where where I'm at and, uh, you know, the, these two strokes that are still around, the YZ250, um, you know, I'll look at that, you know, your comment of it being 12 years old. I'll look at that all day long and say, you know, why fix something that works so good? And, uh, you know, 12... Yeah, well, 12 years ago, the YZ250 put an ear-to-ear -ear grin on my face, and today it does. So I honestly can't complain with that one bit. Absolutely right. Uh, it's, it's, yeah, I mean, no, there's, there's, they don't need to – they just are like, we're not going to stop making the YZ. We're just going to keep it as is because as is works. And that's one of the things that I think Yamaha got away from. I think that they have like – They've kind of gotten a bad rep now with the newer YZ450. Uh, it just it doesn't seem to have. I think so many people got used to the old YZs uh, having so much consistency. Uh, it, it it felt a certain way, and when they went to the newer YZ, it was a completely different motorcycle. They didn't they didn't build upon the motorcycle that they had had. They completely rebuilt it, and so all those people that were so used to the way that YZs handled and the way they developed and the way that they changed. It was just like cut in half and completely changed, completely different. And now people are still kind of like, how do you ride this new motorcycle? I mean, obviously people have figured out they made all kinds of changes to different things and stuff like that. But I think that's initial, you know, kind of way that people had responded to stuff like that. I was on a four-stroke, or uh, I was riding two-strokes growing up, went to four-strokes uh, just because when I went to college and started racing dirt or uh, mountain bikes more, um, the bikes that I then rode were the ones that my dad had lying around and they were all, you know, four strokes. That's just what he had. I think he had one of the 98, 99, you know, 400s or 426s. So I was playing around on that. Uh, and then a 250F and I had like a 07 WR 250F after college. And then it was like, well, I want to get another two stroke. So I have, and now I love it. And I don't really want to go back to a four stroke. I think they really do feel, feel heavier, you know? So I don't know. Yeah, no, definitely. I totally agree with you. And I think that, you know, you look back, uh, going back to what you said about the, the new chassis with the Yamahas, um, you know, it's it's something where you look at 08 and 09 YZ450s were one of the best four-strokes ever made, in my opinion. They were great on the motocross tour, uh, track. Uh, you know, James Stewart proved that. Um, you know, the overall platform in, in 2008, 2009 was phenomenal. But um, Yamaha doesn't really live by their, you know, just the standard with that. You know, you go all the way back to 1998 when they came out with the first production racing uh, four-stroke and, you know, they changed the industry. And I think that with this new model, and I say this from experience, you know, riding one, um, you know, there's a lot of things different that I think Yamaha was aiming for that were almost beyond our comprehension of why and what, you know. I mean, yes, it's goofy and it's a lot different. But there's a lot more that goes into it than what we think, you know, as far as the weight and the distribution of power and, uh, you know, just overall, all the different, uh, I would say, just the technology that goes into the machine. I would just put it to a place where Yamaha doesn't do things without thinking it through. So if they did something that seems weird right now, I would say give it five years and everybody's going to, you know, everybody's going to say, oh, that made a whole lot of sense thing for me is that like putting the air filter in the front uh, you know i mean it's this i mean why do you think the radiators are there same reason you know they need that air they don't they need the air to breathe so that they can cool off well the air filter needs the air literally so it can breathe in and i think it's super smart uh you know there's little things like that that's just like whoa that's pretty cool you know so i don't know it's going to be interesting to see how that develops is not without challenges. Um, I've done a lot of top ends on four strokes. And, um, you know, when uh, when you start working on that YZ450 and you get it all apart and you, you go kind of into your standard top end replacement mode and you uh, put your piston in, you do everything, put it all back together. And um, all of a sudden you realize that it doesn't quite sound the way it should. And uh, you think to yourself, man, why is this bike so difficult to work on? And you realize that everything's backwards. And you realize you put your piston in backwards. Uh, you know that's a that's a stressful situation. That I'm not gonna lie, was uh, one of my first experiences with that bike. <laughs> yeah, I would uh, I, I would like to share the blame with my good friend Kyle Kubacek. 
um, one of my best friends in the world and a good guy. And uh, I would like to give 50% of the blame to him, uh, being that uh, we might have been watching a Seep Time episode that night and the beers might have been flowing. And then we decided, hey, let's go do a top end. So I, actually, I'd like to give you some of the blame as well. Hey, man, let's take it all. We'll, we'll go from there, and it's all good. We learn from experience. <laughs> that is fly racing. Fly racing is awesome. I'm going to bring up the ad. You know why? Because I can do that now. Look at that. Flyracing.com. So fly racing. Okay. Guys, they make some wicked cool gear. Their distributor is WPS. You need to check both of those guys out. So flyracing.com, all kinds of new stuff coming out for 2013. The neat thing is that these guys just don't make cool gear. They're cool guys as well. All the ladies, all the dudes that work there, really fun to hang out with. Got to meet them when I was uh, in Boise, Idaho for the ISCE qualifier that I didn't qualify for, but it was still fun riding. Uh, everybody's really cool. You know, we're good friends with Dale Spangler, you know, uh, Brian gets to go to the bar with them all the time. I've been to the bar with them a couple times. I wish it could be more than just the few it is, but still. So flyracing.com. Go check them out. 2013 line Hyperlight gear coming out. Brian, I know you've all got kinds of good stuff to say about these guys. So what do you got to say? Well, man, first off, living here in Boise, you know, I kind of get an unfair bias on, on the opinion. Uh, Dale Spangler is uh, not only is he a good friend of mine, he's a, he's a mentor and uh, just somebody that I really appreciate more than anything. And I'm not sure why my computer's making funny noises, but it did. Uh, but anyways, no, nah, Dale, the guys at Fly, you know, they're a huge sponsor of, of me personally. Um, Dale helps me out with a lot of different things and a lot of ideas that we bounce off of each other. And it's just exciting to be a part of, of a business that has, uh, has really kind of developed its own sense of uh of the industry with off-road and it's just neat to see that because you know dale spangler defines the passion and what we're all about and it's neat to have somebody in his role um in a company that is so passionate about the off-road industry and um you know huge props to that man i mean it's it's a big deal and uh it's nice because sometimes we're overshadowed in the off-road industry um and so it's good to know that we got manufacturers that are behind us and uh, just loving what we do, and uh, man, Dale Spengler definitely defines that. So, and we, you know, we're we're on a platform these days where you see it. You know, you talk to a guy like uh, Jason Hooper from uh, last week's show. You know, Hoops just an awesome guy, and uh, you know, Dale supporting him as well. So, you know, we try to keep this all in the same group to where, you know, what man, we're all friends. We all love riding dirt bikes. We all love a pint full of awesome. And, you know, it's just a matter of us uh, getting together and building uh, building friendships and riding dirt bikes, you know? I love it. Well, thank you very much for your kind words. Uh, I do appreciate everything that Fly Racing has done for us. Really appreciate it. So thank you again, Fly Racing. Go check them out, flyracing.com. One of the things I wanted to talk to you a little bit about, uh, Mr. Brian Elliott, is the ISTE that happened. Uh, we got a you know, uh, Hoop and I covered a lot that went on. But I just realized that I am actually going to retract that statement, and it is now your turn to come up with the next topic. So the camera's going to you, buddy. All right, my camera and my topic, um, it may be something people are very familiar with, but uh, I myself am fairly new to this. Um, I was going to, you know, no, that actually is not... Uh, you know, that was not my topic of discussion. We can go there uh, in further conversations if we'd like to. Um, yeah, maybe that's a different show altogether. That'll be on the Seat Time After Show. <laughs> but what I want to talk to you about is this whole J-Day off-road program. <laughs> you know, I don't... Uh, you know, today was my first day. You know, we talked this morning about kind of our bomb that happened last night and everything and, uh, you know, trying to figure out how we could bring this back together and whatnot. But, um, you know, I've been just kind of sitting back wondering uh, who these guys are, what they're doing, and uh, huge props to it, man. I mean, it looks like the J-Day Off-Road Series is uh, just a bitchin' series. And uh, I'm not going to lie, if I bring my dirt bike back east, that, that might be where you find me because... I like the format. The tracks look awesome. 
and uh, it just looks like a lot of fun. So I'm going to make it my goal before the year's up to hit up one of the races. Before the year's up, you got like two months left. It's October. Yeah, well, they, they go really far north. But, okay, so J-Day Off-Road. I got to talk to Johnny Garur. Garur? I, I even talked to the guy. I don't even know how to pronounce his last name. It's like, yeah, rah, 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 It's like Scooby-Doo. But, so, he's like 16 years old. He's been through a, he actually grew up as a motocross racer. And this is just about him, and then it'll kind of lead into the J-Day Off-Road stuff. So, apparently, he grew up as a motocross racer really, really good, really fast. And then he had some issues with his dad passing away and a really good friend, so some family issues. Kind of stuck away from racing for a little bit, but then he was like, I want to get back into it. So one of his friends was racing the J-Day Off-Road Winter Series. From what I understand, this guy John Day, when he started back up, he started kind of like a four or five race Winter Series there up in the Northeast and got a lot of interest, and people really liked the format, and that's when he was like, all right, cool, I'm going to really, you know, I think he did that just to kind of feel out the water, just to see how it was going, and since everybody really enjoyed the different kind of a format for the off-road crew, he was like, all right, I'm going to go for it, so he started the series, and it's been taken off ever since. Now, my opinions on it, I I am so teeter-totter, like, because, because I grew up on the enduro side of things, you know, that is enduro, endurance. You know, it's the it's 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 outlasting your component, it's outracing your component throughout uh, you know, a very you know, very long time period. So, you know, when I started getting into cross country racing, where I had my personal issues was the fact that I didn't have speed. I didn't have sprint speed. And then, you know, I got into it, I practiced a little bit more, figured it out, but I still think that I personally uh, this is opinions wise coming across. It's really hard to go. God, I want to do that because I know I would get my ass handed to me, up, down, sideways, left and right. Like it would just be so horrible. The you know performance I'd be able to put on on a motorcycle in one of those thirty minute. I mean, you're just. I mean, you're just you're blipping the throttle and moving for that amount of time. So that's my personal. It's like, but. The tracks look freaking great. And I think that the rougher they get, the better they look. I mean, maybe that's just the way the videos come across because they're churning it up and, like, blasting berms and stuff. Man, those guys make it look like a lot of fun. So that's kind of my... That last video, it looked pretty darn good to me. That's for sure. Um... I don't know, man. You know, I think that with uh, with off-road racing, there is a certain amount of format that you kind of have to stick to. So I think they're right on. Uh, excuse me. They're uh, they're on the fine line of is it moto? Is it off-road? Um, it's tough because I think you look at works and uh, and this is again completely opinion based. I might make some people angry with this, but. Uh, you know, I feel that the falling apart of the work series really started when they started cutting their formats back, and uh, the tracks became more moto oriented and less off roady. And you know what? Just everybody kind of shied away from it. I mean, you know, Kawasaki pulling out of works isn't you know that's not something to me where I look at it and say, oh wow, that's a huge surprise. I mean, it's an off road program, and I think works has become more of a half an hour moto, if anything else. And it's like you know, you got guys that can moto that can go out and win a works race because the distance isn't there, the endurance isn't there. But I think that these guys with the, with the J-Day, I think that they're keeping a good balance, and that's really important. There's something really intriguing about the format and how they're doing it um, that I think is neat. And, you know, if anything, it's the course. You know, they've got what is an off-road course, and they're doing, you know, these, uh, these fun laps and whatnot. And, you know, I think that's cool. You know, so, uh, you know, whereas the work series, they didn't, they made the courses mo- more moto-like, and then they made the the timing more moto-like, and eventually people just stopped going to where these guys on the East Coast, they're rocking it because they're they're changing the format and the timing, but they're making a course that's still an off-road course. And so for me, I look at it and say, hey, let's, let's see how it goes because um, they've got my attention. I'm all over it. I'm watching the races. You know, I'm in the place where it's like, man, I, you know, that looks pretty cool. That looks like something I want to be a part of. And, um, you know, I like that. That makes it very intriguing to me. 
could agree with you more on pretty much all points. One of the things, though, is say your opinion or what you said about the works program. So if, if Sean Redditch and his other partners would have... Well, I mean, he well he owns works. That's public knowledge. Uh, yeah, uh, if if he were to have gone east with the new works format before J Day Off Road had come up in the past, you know, year and a half, two years, would works be would works have taken off and have been a better series, um, or do you think that maybe the promoters and the people that laid out the tracks? even if they went east, would have then still kind of tried to create this more moto track or what works is, you know, what we're going to say, it. what works has become feels more moto You know, that everybody can kind of agree with that. You know, is that not just, or is it just because of location base? You know, could they fight to make things more off-road in California or is what you're going to find out there mainly a bunch of moto tracks? Uh, you know, I think there's multiple uh, multiple answers to that question. I think that, for one, I think they lost their audience uh, based upon the individuals running the program. I think there was a lot of very unhappy families that drove a long way uh, with expectations of what they were going to get and didn't get it. Um, and so, in turn, they changed over being that they were in a specific area and they tried to pick up a little bit of the moto crowd, um, which, again, I don't think uh, – uh, was a good business decision. I think that the moto crowd kind of looked at it and said, this isn't our thing. We're, we're going to go moto this weekend. Why would I go do that um, when it's harder and the contingency is less? Um, and I think that there was, just, there was just all sorts of bad decisions. Do I think that works could have gone to the East Coast and, and made it? Um, I, again, completely opinion-based? Absolutely not. Um, one of my favorite things about growing up in Montana um, and, and being out here in Idaho is a, is a sense of, uh, of who I am and a sense of kind of, I guess you would say respect and just a little bit different general attitude. And I don't think that that mentality of the way the works program was ran would have flown one bit back East. I think that to put a successful race series on, on the East coast, um, there's uh, it needs to be a specific environment. And uh, without pointing any fingers or doing anything like that, I just think that it wouldn't have been a good combination, let's say. So I think these guys out there at uh, the J-Day and what they're doing, it looks like they're getting good crowds. Um, and, you know, I, you know I, I've definitely done some work. I've done – I've put my time in trying to promote races and do different things. And, you know, this year we had a race in Montana called the Big Sky XC. And um, – it was the trifecta of perfect. I mean, we had the location, you know, the largest ski resort in North America um, that is absolutely closed to all motorized vehicles 99% of the year. Um, we, we had the riders. We had full factory race teams in force. And on top of that, we had contingency. And so we, we put all these things together. And, you know, um, I don't care if you live in Florida. I don't care if you live in New Mexico. You know, these people have heard of Big Sky Montana. You know, to them, it's like that's the definition of being up there. And so people came from all over the country, and it resulted in the largest pro starting line uh, probably in the last you know, four to five years that I can think of with the highest pro contingency. And uh, at the end of that race, you know, Wibley won the race. And, uh, man, you know, Wibley won it. Wibley's a, a beast, but – Huge props go out to a, a young man from uh, Washington, from Bremerton area, named uh, Brendan Ritzman. And uh, this kid has raced the work series. He's raced Hare and Hounds. He's raced Moto. Um, he's best buddies with, uh, with uh, Ricky Dietrich. And these two kind of grew up together. And Ritzman came out and just uh, rode awesome. And, uh, you know, it was a matter of you know, people came from all over the country and, and what brought them out. And I know this kind of brings into a different subject, but the reality is, is to have a successful racing program, you have to kind of have that trifecta. You have to have a good location for one. You have to have the contingency and you have to have that factory support uh, to where people want to be a part of that, man. You know, you go to a supercross, you go to a fun event, you get the pits and you get that environment and People want to be a part of it, and I think that at Big Sky, we had that, and we created that on top of those other two things, and, you know, when the race was all said and done, um, 
not only was the race all these perfect things, but it was a very difficult race to complete. So there was a mutual respect in the in the crowd where people were just pumped to finish the race. And and you know what, man? To me, that defines off road racing. I want to get back to a place where these racers crossed the finish line and they were like, "Holy smokes, I'm glad I finished." And I think that that's kind of where it needs to be. Oh, I love it, man. I totally agree. Uh, you know, we've kind of gotten a little burnout on some of the racing that's been going on in here in Texas and stuff like that. Been trying to figure out if there's any way that I can spice it up. You know, I've got ideas. I'm a crazy guy. I could do something nuts. Uh, you know, and I'm not really going to share them just yet because there's still ideas. Uh, got to talk to landowners, all that kinds of crap. But it's like, you know, you always want to try to find a way. It's like when things get stale, you want to try to find a way to spice it up. And so that's what's great, you know. That, that there's people out there that are going to take that initiative like John Day and be like, you know, that's fine. I don't like racing for three hours. I don't want to do that, but I love off-road. So he's going to go make a more moto format that still has amazing off-road trails. So props to John Day. I'm glad you brought that up. I have not talked about that with anybody, but honestly, that that very much deserves to be talked about on any moto program. I'm, I'm hoping that some of the other guys are covering that as well. Um, and I'm hoping maybe that they can uh, that they can that I can have him on one day, maybe before they do, because you know that would be that'd be fun for me. I like I like uh, a little further east than you, and uh, and go have some fun. I think it looks like a fun series, and you know just a lot of good guys that are racing it, and uh, that makes that makes a series, man. When you got good people out there racing, it's, it always becomes a fun time. Who's next to you? So. All right, so we're pushing an hour. So at this point, we just kind of have to say we've got a six-pack left over. We can drink those respectively of our own accord if our wives do say that that is okay. But we've kind of got to pull it together. So, Brian, I would like to give you a chance to go ahead and throw out all your little stuff about who you are um, uh, and where people can find you. Okay, you ready? Three, two, one, go. Well, it's pretty easy, you know. Facebook, we've got, uh, we just maxed out our personal account at the the Brian Elliott side, so we just started up the Alliance Off Road. So just the Facebook at Alliance Off Road or slash Alliance Off Road. Um, we have the Twitter, uh, Brian Elliott AMM at Twitter, and uh, on our Instagram, just Alliance Off Road. So you know, fairly easy, and uh, you know, we're always down to have a good time. So I mean, we kind of have an open door policy out here in Idaho. Um, this off-road industry is a, is a real large family to me. So anytime people are coming out, coming through, hit me up. We're out here. I'm always down to go ride my dirt bike and, uh, show somebody a good time. So, you know, just hit me up at any of those addresses and we can go from there. Um, huge props to, uh, to my friends. Like I said, you know, it's a big follow up with, uh, Jason Hooper, Dale Spangler, these guys that uh, have been on the show that, uh, you know, they're awesome guys, and it's just I'm excited to finally, you know, 60 episodes later, I'm pumped to be on the show and have a good time with you. And, uh, yeah, man, ha- having a good time. I'll, I'm okay with being number 60. Well, that's all right because I didn't drop any F-bombs like who? Oh. oh I might have, and that's okay. But that's okay. It's my show. I can do what I want. Unfortunately, there are consequences that come with it. So I do apologize if I might have offended anyone's ears. That is not my plan. We just like to have a good time and enjoy a pintful of awesome. But this pintful of awesome is Seat Time. And where you can find Seat Time is at seattime.co. That is the website where all of the shenanigans do reside on the internet. And if well, if you're one of those people that really enjoy Facebook, maybe you're like, oh, Facebook, yay, why would I want to work? There's Facebook. Oh, I can go to Facebook. Why not go to work? No, Facebook. Facebook.com slash seat time. Spend your day there, hang out with us, and just uh, create your own pipeful of awesome while you're pretending to be at work. Or maybe you're on Twitter. I don't know. You like, you got like 140 characters. That's it. That's all you know how to say. You're just finding a way to cut that down. It's like negative two. I'm over. Twitter.com slash seattime underscore CO. That is where you can find us. That is where you can tweet us. Tweet us real hard. We love to leverage the bottom. Right, Brian Elliott? Yeah. Honor to even be on seat time tonight. Brian Pierce, what you're doing? I love it. You're doing a great job, my friend. I one, I really appreciate it. I thank you very two, thank you very much for being on the show. And three, I do not think that this is the last time that you and I will be on the internet together. I think, I think that the internet does not know what's coming, and uh, it's gonna have to put on its big boy britches because it's gonna need to be get ready first. 
2013 and even the end of 2012 has got some fun things coming up. And, uh, you know, we just need some guys out there that like to have fun. And I think we can portray that to some folks. So, uh, so definitely look for uh, two Bryans bringing you some awesomeness uh, come the beginning of next year and uh, even maybe even the end of this year. <laughs> Boom! Yes, that's the way it works. Okay, I hope this has gone over well. Someone's going to have to respond at some point and tell me if this worked out or not. I'm going to keep working on the format. I'm going to call AT&T U-verse and make sure that they actually up my bandwidth because I think I want to actually do this at HD. I know it's been a little... Hopefully, everybody's enjoyed it. Remember, always enjoy a pint full of awesome. Be safe. Have fun. Enjoy life. And uh, hit us up. We love you guys. Take it easy. Peace.